You're listening to the 414 Creative Legacy Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Curtis. And on the show, we do a deep dive with entrepreneurs on all things business, faith, and how to build a lasting legacy. Thank you for listening and enjoy the episode. Hey guys, welcome to the 414 Creative Legacy Podcast. Thank you so much for listening today. I'm really excited about our guest that we have on. He is Mike Yarbrough. He's the founder of the podcast Wolf and Iron. And he also is the founder of Rustic in Maine, where they make custom handmade rings that tell a story. This guy is super uh, passionate about entrepreneurship stories and helping men heed the high calling of living a manful life. Mike, thank you so much for being today on this episode. I'm super excited about it. I've watched you from afar uh, on Facebook. We've been friends for a while, but we've never actually met. And we have some similar, similar interests, and I'm really, really excited to uh, spend this time with you today. So thank you so much. Yeah, man. It's a pleasure to be here. I think you might be the first uh, podcaster that's also a photographer kind of guy that I've been on a podcast with. Yeah. So if we end up just geeking out this whole rest of this episode about photography, that's totally fine with me. <laughs> that's totally fine so with me too. I think that's a piece of my, uh, one of my passions that I, I'm always trying to figure out, how do I work this into what do I do? Yeah, uh, and it's so many of the things are focused on entrepreneurship and you know uh, uh, manliness and that kind of stuff. But there's also these great hobbies that we have that we love, and it's like, man, how do we fit those into the into the our work? And um, but anyhow, yeah, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, thank you, thank you again. And I think also we both have beards, so that's true. That works. Yours is yours is beefier than mine. Uh, <laughs> that's uh, the back... shadow play. That's what that is. It's just like <laughs> oh, okay, the lighting. It's the lighting. Right. Yeah. It's the lighting to make I need to change nice. my lighting up, I guess. Um, yeah. Back in 2000 and, uh, 2000, like 10, 11 and 12, I kind of really launched into my photography business and I th- had an idea of like, I could just be the photographer with a beard. And so I spent the next eight months not tending to my beard at all. Yeah. And it, I got like eight inches and uh, one day uh, I was looking in the mirror and I thought to myself, man, I kind of look homeless <laughs> and I think I might need to do something. And so I trimmed it to the to basically this length and I've kept it since then because, you know, people don't want to work with a homeless looking guy. But yeah, so, man, I'm really excited about um, diving into your story, your journey to what's gotten you to like where you are today. And I know uh, you have a book called Tending the Fire, and we're going to dive into that a little later. And you talk a little bit of, about your your childhood and some of the things that have just kind of shaped you throughout your life. I know that you mentioned in the book that you were raised by your grandparents for the most part. Yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit about your childhood that has put some key foundations that basically has gotten you to where you are today. It's interesting because I've, I've met other guys now that I'm older and met guys through life that we might have a similar life now, like we live in uh, the city or the suburbs or whatever yeah. you want to call it. But they realize that where they grew up is really unique, especially compared to today and how kids are raised. Most of most kids are raised today. Right. So my, my mom and dad um, divorced when I was maybe like one years old. They were both really young. And, uh, and my grandparents on my mom's side were always a really big part of my life. And when I was about nine years old, I officially went to live with them and they lived right on the banks of the Hatchie River. And so they have a, a you know home out. They still live out there. Uh, now my sister has a house out there as well. That used to be my mom's house. Anyhow, long story. Yeah. There's been a lot of, that's basically like the family property. 
And uh, we're so close to the river that it would often, you know, flood into our yard and, uh, you know, like where we grow gardens and stuff, which was actually yeah. good for, for the soil. But we basically just had that sort of edge of um, not civilization, but just sort of out in the country, like about as far out as you could get, to, you know, and there's not like anything else out there except for farms and uh, a lot of crops and stuff like that. And growing up in that area um, in the 80s, especially, I didn't really have access to, you know, technology because there wasn't much technology then. Yeah. But I also didn't even have the influence of like most TV shows like MTV and a lot of stuff that my peers at school kind of had access to where they had cable television. I just didn't have that. So we had like three or four channels, you know, and there was only a few times during the day when like there was anything on that I actually wanted to watch. So I spent a lot of time in the woods, a lot of time running around. My grandfather and grandmother um, both spent a lot of time gardening, hunting, you know, and all that kind of stuff. My granddaddy had a, a construction business that I helped him out with. And so from about the age of nine to 13 um, is when I lived with them and had most of my kind of formative years there um, kind of growing up and, yeah. you know, in an older style way of, of, of living. Wow. That's, uh, that's interesting how you probably had one, you know, one set of, um, style of living and then yep. in, 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 and then going to school and in, in experiencing how these other kids are being raised. Um, and you, this was in Tennessee, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Out in Tennessee. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I, and you're right. I did. I had, um, you know, growing up in the country where I was, but we would commute to some school and I went to all kinds of different schools, um, kind of bounced around, and, uh, you know, there were kids there who were also from the country, but then you had kids that were from like the city and yeah. like they lived differently than everybody else lived. You know, they had the, the, the new speakers and they had lingo about songs and, you know, stuff that I had yeah. no idea on. And so, you know, like you'd hear stuff on the radio, car rides and stuff like that. So I wasn't totally oblivious to what was happening in the outside world. I just wasn't inundated with it like a lot of people were uh, growing up and especially like we are these days. Yeah, uh, I know, you know, technology's skyrocketed since we were children you know i grew up yeah. in the 80s and i think one of the things that i always wished we had was like a tv in the car because we did a lot of traveling when i was younger and and then we're driving in the car a couple of days ago with my five-year-old and she said daddy do do they have cars that drive themselves and I, <laughs> I was just thinking back i was like man all i wanted when i was a kid was a tv in the van you know yeah, and here I have a five-year-old asking me if cars can drive themselves, and I, I, I had I said yes, and it was just a weird uh, experience of saying, yeah, they do have cars that drive themselves, and then she had more questions involving that, but it was just interesting how you know just in a sh short time, um, mm -hmm. you know, I'm 40 now, but technology has changed so much, and we we have these kids who are growing up in a much different world than we did, and have you noticed a resistance of learning some of the old ways of living and thinking and, you know, just dealing with life in general? Yeah, definitely. Uh, and I see it in kids all the time. I've seen it in my kids. And so when we got, you know, our kids got a little bit older, we were by that point, we were in the suburbs of Charlotte and we got a nice home and, you know, that kind of stuff. But we have, a, it's like a, almost a half acre lot, I guess, which is big, you know, in a city area. Yeah. 
And when, and I'd have like some, uh, either some logs brought in or we'd find logs that, you know, trees that had been felled in the neighborhood by some company. And then we would snatch them up and bring them to the house. And we learned how to split wood, teach my kids those kinds of things. You know, we built a, a tree fort, you know, those kinds of things. And there wasn't really a resistance to that necessarily, but there would have been a resistance as to, um, why do I really need to learn how to do this? You know, like they can't, they realize like it's important to know kind of like dad's doing it. But yeah. there was also this sense of like, but practically why, like, why do I need to learn how to split wood? Why do I need to learn how to build, uh, you know, frame this out? Why do I need, uh, to learn how to change the oil in the car or, um, drive a stick? That's another one, right? Like, yeah. Like, why would I ever need, need that? You know, why would I ever need to hunt? Why would I ever need to, you know, and that's the sort of the mindset is that, uh, our kids have this mindset of like, there's no going back. We're, we're, we've progressed as society yeah. and there's no going back to like a more primitive age or whatever they, they want to call it. And I think that's where that resistance comes from. It's almost like a, there's other things that I could be learning besides this antiquated stuff. And what they don't realize is that this sort of antiquated quote unquote stuff is really key to their development, you know, their fundamental development as human beings. Yeah. Um, and especially as men. And if they don't learn these things, they're going to feel like there's something lacking in their world and they can't quite put their finger on it. Mm. Yeah, I can I can feel that. And you have two boys. I have two girls. And I've always wondered, how can I take the lessons that I'm learning as being a man and somehow morph that in a way that I can teach lessons to my daughters? And I think one of the big things that I'm learning is... and you know, we've always taken the approach of that one day our daughters will be 35 yeah. and they'll be adults. And my job is to raise a phenomenal adult, not a good kid. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the things that I'm really trying to focus on is if my life can be an example for her, that way she can choose the right husband. Yeah. So she has a standard to go by. Um, but she did ask me the other day, I was really proud of her. She said, daddy, is there going to be a day that you teach me how to chop wood? Oh, wow. And I was like, oh, I must be doing something right. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yes, one day I will teach you how to chop wood. You're just not ready yet. So one of the things that I've seen with guys who have that are, that are good dudes and they've got daughters is that the daughters in some comparisons are more ready for life and more manually manly you know, ready for the manly chores of life yeah. than a lot of the guys out there. And they kind of, they're like, where are the men? So like, you know, when your daughters get older, they're going to be like, where are the the men who like compared to me are more manly. And it's not that your daughters are going to be like, you know, all butch and stuff like that. Yeah. But it's, this just talks about the, the downfall of masculinity and where guys are these days um, is that they're, yeah. I mean, when you prepare your daughters to really be, whether it's self-sufficient or to know what a man looks like, um, they're also you're also preparing them to see a field that is wanting of men, you know, to actually be men. Yeah. Do you think that I want to get into and diving more into this, but what you just said, you know, gave me this question of like, do you think that when it comes to pressure of being a man and you do a, such a good job in your book about explaining why it's important to be a man. Uh, but do you think the pressure to be a man, say for instance, for dads, is greater for men who have girls or men who have boys? Oh, that's a good question. 
we always wanted girls as well to kind of round out the family. And we, yeah. we really feel like that would have been great to have. And so I don't really have experience raising girls. Um, so I probably can't answer this fully. Uh, I, I would feel like there's a much more of a, that protector role that a man yeah. feels when he has daughters than when he has sons. And so, and that's very, it can be very visceral, you know, in terms of, yeah. like, you know, uh, that sort of that raw feeling of like, do I have what it takes to defend my daughters and defend my family? Because I'm, I feel like I'm the only one, you know, whereas I got boys and I kind of feel like if somebody came into the house, you know, they'd kind of bum rush them too, maybe. Yeah. It's, there's a little bit of that sense. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that it's, maybe it's equal, but just in different ways. Cause I, I think the father has to say, I want to set the example for my sons to live up to, but then also, you know, as a, as a father of daughters, I got to set this example of what my daughter needs to be, you know, one day married to. And that's, I mean, I think they're both just different. I feel for the guys who have both, you know, <laughs> they got a son yeah. and a daughter and they're kind of like, I appreciate oh. that. <laughs> uh, yeah. I know uh, we have in our community of, you know, close friends, it's a mixture, you know, um, I, I try to think, Oh, I do have one friend that's really close to, he has one daughter mm -hmm. and having two is very interesting. And, you know, we had a miscarriage before our second and I really felt like that, that child was a boy um, deep in my spirit. And I honestly felt like our second was a, a boy as well. And we were like, no, that's a girl. And so, but you know, it's a, it's a, it's one of those things where I do want to spend a lot of time training them up. You know, the, you know, the scripture says, train your child up in the way it should go and they'll never depart from it. Yeah. And, <clears throat> and then there are times where I'm just like, you got to be tough, right? Like you've got to, you know, but I'm learning that there's, there's some emotional dynamics there where I'm having to push back a little bit of what I want to see and allow them to have those emotions and, and it's just it's a man it's interesting yeah especially with five and two it, it's it's crazy i think uh some of it is if you can imagine your daughters being you know older like in their 20s or 30s and telling a story about like you and who their dad is or you know hopefully not was, wow. but who you know who their dad is and say this is the kind of guy my dad is he was always doing this and which do you think is more impactful to their husband is it the story of my dad came to all my recitals and my dad played with my little ponies and my dad did all these little girly things or my dad was, you know, out chopping wood, taking care of things, you know, working out, hanging out with guys. Uh, but he was also loving and kind. Right. I think there has to be that masculine piece. And I think that one of yeah. the ways that some guys get wrong in, in the raising of daughters is that they feel like they have to be, uh, you know, they want to make sure that she's always daddy's little girl and he's always her best hero. And there's this kind of like Disney sort of yeah, you know, aspect of it. And I think that that's not very helpful for, for women for most of the life. You know, they don't need dad to be their best friend. They need dad to be a strong leader and a good man. And so yeah. that she can easily see, oh, there's a difference between men and boys. And my dad's a man and everybody else doesn't measure up, you know. Yeah, that's good. So I want to shift gears real quick and start talking about your your podcast and okay. why you started your podcast and then also um, diving a little bit into Rustic in Maine and 
that operation and and that start. I know I think you said that it's it's a, it was a hobby and it kind of just grew. So talk a little bit about uh, your podcast, why you started it, and like what your goal was in regards to the topics that you discuss. So Wolf and Iron began in 2013, and I was really at a place in my life where I was in my 30s, and we you know we got married at 18, started having kids early, and I, I realized that um, in my 20s that there was a lot of stuff I didn't know. I thankfully had some guys come along and, and kind of show me some things that I didn't you know that that would be helpful later in life. And by the time I got into my 30s, I really wanted to just be on this journey with other guys and start sharing yeah. what I did know with other guys. Plus, it's a it's almost like a um, it's a motivator for me to keep moving forward as a man. Right. So Wolf and Iron began as a blog, and that was that first year was just me writing stuff just to see if it was something that I was really going to be into a year later. Uh, that next year, I was like, okay, I'm into this. This is this is part of my who I want to become, and 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 uh, and and also part of the. Um, the piece to this, if you can imagine back in 2013, we had basically like uh, Art of Manliness. Yeah. Maybe one other thing. And I think um, Order of Man started up shortly after yeah. uh, I did. And so there really wasn't a whole lot of stuff out there, like wholesome good things for building up guys. And because of that vacuum, I realized that there was a lot of opportunity for um, for the bad dudes to step in and start kind of taking guys down the wrong path. Um, yeah. And I really wanted to jump in and be a part of that. So anyhow, the podcast began, I don't know, maybe 2015. And um, uh, and it just kind of grew from there. And since then, Wolf and Iron has has really become, um, we've got, you know, beard oils and stuff like that that we sell. We're actually getting ready to launch a line of coffee. We've got some t-shirts and various things. Uh, awesome. We also have a community now that we're inviting guys to. It took a number of years to figure out like what that, like how we were going to monetize this thing and, and what that was going to look like. And, uh, and that's still, you know, part of the, the process. Yeah. Um, but I've, you know, maintained, um, you know, a strong commitment to it and, and we just keep going and, uh, trying to have awesome guests on and get the word out. And then, uh, rustic in Maine, um, you know, happened in 2016. So while Wolf and Iron was kind of getting started, rustic in Maine came about, and that is a, a business where we cre create wedding rings out of historic woods and other unique materials. So we have woods from World War One, World War II, wow. rifle stocks, battleship wood, all kinds of cool stuff. And it, it all kind of pairs into this idea of telling a story and doing things that are sentimental, meaningful, connecting us with a greater, um, uh, a greater story that yeah. we're a part of, whether, you know, particularly as men, because our rings uh, appeal to men mostly. And, um, and so that, that kicked off in 2016. And that was a, uh, it was a project. I, I was because of all the blogging I was doing, and I was also a software developer at the time. I started wow. to get carpal tunnel feelings kind of in my hands, and I stopped wearing my regular gold wedding ring. And I uh, this went on for maybe six or eight months, and I was like, I need to wear something. So I, I popped into the garage, drilled out a hole in, in an exotic piece of wood that I had, and I shaped <laughs> it out into a ring. And people started asking me about it, and that started getting my entrepreneurial, the entrepreneurial kind of antennas started going off. Like, yeah, ding, ding, maybe there's something here. And, and I thought, well, other people are making rings out of wood, but what if we could make them with woods that tell a story, you know? And so it, it really just kicked off from there. And so 2016 was the launch. Um, I think in 2018, we hit our first uh, million. Wow, then, that's awesome. Um, and then we've just been growing ever since then. Now we got a team of about 25 or so people. Uh, my wife and I co-own Rustic in Maine, and we co-run that business. And um, yeah, it's, it's wild. But we have two different businesses that... Uh, that actually worked together fairly well. Yeah, that's awesome. 
have you always felt an entrepreneurial draw into creating your own business, not working for someone else? I know you mentioned that you were a software developer prior, but do you kind of look back now and see like your, your childhood, your, you know, your teen years where you kind of can see how you had this entrepreneurial route and it just kind of maybe flourished in your later years in life? Yeah, definitely. And I wasn't the the typical entrepreneur that always had like a, you know, like a lemonade stand, oh, yeah. or, you know, those kind of stories. I think the first thing that I sold was like, I took some matchbox cars to work, you know, or hot wheels or something like that, or, or not to work to school Yeah. Uh, when I was a kid. And I sold them for like one, like the first one for like five cents. And then all the other kids were like, oh my gosh, you know, we want to buy these. And you know, next one I sold for 10 cents and then 25 cents. And I was starting to make some money. That's probably my first, you know, like entrepreneurial venture, I wow. guess, until that got shut down. But the, um, <laughs> I think a lot of it for me, and it still maintains my main motivation is I just want to do cool stuff. I just yeah. want to do things that I find really interesting and fun and that, that I think add value to the world. And, you know, I could do some of that as a developer, even as a software developer, I had my own, I sold some software on the side. And, and so I had some entrepreneurial uh, pieces going on there. So I've always, you know, just tried to do things that I thought were neat. And it wasn't until, I guess, um, right around 2015, maybe 2016, it really hit me like, oh, maybe I'm an entrepreneur at heart. And that's, I think the piece that scares new entrepreneurs is that leadership piece. Yeah. Because uh, people may have an entrepreneurial spirit, like they like to make cool stuff and they want to kind of do their own thing. But it's that aspect of taking on leadership that um, and really just staying out on their own, making their own decisions that that scares some people away. And so once I got comfortable with that um, and that and a lot of that was attributed to the growth that was happening with Wolf and Iron, uh, my own personal growth um, in particular. Um, but, you know, once I kind of understood that, that I could lead, then it was like, oh, game on. Let's go. That's awesome. What are some of the things that you have experienced in growing Rustic in Maine and or, you know, uh, Wolf and Iron that have taught you some of the biggest lessons in, and it seems like a short amount of time, you know, yeah. in, in the grand scheme of things, you, in, I mean, you're what? I'm 43 oh, now. Well, <clears throat> I was oh. thinking like, you're like, it, not even 10 years into what you're doing. You're close yeah. to, you know, 10 years into starting the blog and all that stuff. What are some of the things in that short amount of time that you've, that you've just really learned really important lessons? Uh, I've learned, um, this was a big software development, uh, piece as well, is that incrementalism is, is good. Meaning that, um, don't just try to go out like gangbusters and just do everything all at once. Yeah. Whether it's a new product launch or it's your new business or whatever the case is, start small and be able to build up from there. Um, you know, test things out, see how it does. If you've got a new product or like a new business, uh, put some feelers out, try to get some feedback. You know, uh, what we called in the software world, a minimum viable product is we would just tr create like the smallest uh, conceptual, you know, concept of, of some kind of product that was, would be good enough to give us feedback on how the larger product would perform, yeah. how people would receive it and those kinds of things. So that's a big piece that, and I still live by that today. So like even with our, our launch of our um, line of coffee, uh, that's, that's all going to be Theodore Roosevelt themed and really cool. You know, in my entrepreneurial mind, I see it being like, you know, we got all this coffee and we're shipping it all over the world and yeah. it, we're just going crazy. But, you know, we're not going to start like with like custom bags, uh, you know, or bags that are 100% custom, mm -hmm. everything, you know, er, you know, like going out the door with it. It's just like, what do we need? 
to really make a quality product and to get it into the hands of people so they can start giving us feedback. And we'll kind of know if we're on the right track. And if we are, we'll put more money behind it and kind of, you know, kind of go from, more from there. But it's that uh, a bit of restraint that it takes from an entrepreneur. Um, yeah. It's just to kind of do one little piece at a time. And then my wife and I, we've just learned so much about our own personalities, how we work together, what our strengths are. Uh, we're both uh, more visionary oriented entrepreneurs. Okay. Some entrepreneurs are more operationally focused, meaning they love the just day-to-day grind of stuff. We really like coming up with the concepts and putting people in place to run with the other pieces. And we don't always get a chance to do that, but that's that's really what, we're, what our bent is. So yeah, it has been a short period of time and we've learned a lot. And there's tons of stuff we learned about marketing and many other things as well, um, you know, that I love to geek out about, but <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just, it is, it's a short period of time, but once you get going, it, it all ramps up pretty quickly. Yeah. I think, you know, I'm, I'm the visionary type and my wife, Melissa, you know, we run our agency together and she's more systems. She's more one, two, three, this is what we have to do. Yeah. I see the big picture and sometimes I hard, uh, I have a hard time seeing the first step. I get really excited and it's just like, I want to just blow out of the gate like a bucking bull and, you know, and make a mess basically. And I get really excited about ideas and, um, she's a good balance for me. And she's like, okay, we got to do this and this and this and this. And so that's definitely a lesson that I've, you know, spent a lot of time learning. So you mentioned Theodore Roosevelt and one of my questions was why Theodore Roosevelt? What is it about him that, just, you know, I know you talk about him a lot and you, he's a, he's a main character in your, in your world. Yeah. So why him? You know, there's uh, one of the things that I loved reading about Theodore Roosevelt um, some years back when I was reading some of his, some of the books about him was that people would say he was, it was like meeting pure energy. Wow. And I, I thought, what would that be like? Like, I'm a pretty laid back guy. Yeah. Probably kind of like that as well. I think our personalities line up pretty well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when people meet me, they're probably like, oh, he's, he's a nice guy. He's, he's laid back. They don't say pure energy. Nobody says that about me. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but I thought, what would it be like? I can't even really think of anybody that I've met where I'm just like, this person is just full of so much life and excitement. It just draws me to them. Yeah. And I, and I feel that from Theodore Roosevelt's life, the way he spoke so passionately about things uh, from his early years as being a sickly young kid and growing through that and becoming a, a boxer and a, uh, just a rabble rouser and, you know, explorer and, you know, a warrior and so many other things and uh, a president and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And, uh, and his just that he just had the spirit of life about him that was, is so rare these days. And he experienced so much of life and so much of America um, that it just, it inspires me to think about him. And uh, I've got a picture, you guys can't see it, but I've got a big picture of him up on my wall here. <laughs> and sometimes I'm just like, all right, Theodore, Colonel, whatever, we, here we go, let's, let's, yeah. let's do it. And it's just that, um, yeah, he's just, he's just such an inspirational figure. It's, it's almost difficult to imagine uh, how much life he lived in his, you know, 60 years on this planet. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, in 2010, I moved to Kenya oh. on a wild hair and lived in Nairobi and lived next to this, this little small village. And they would always tell me that this is where Theodore Roosevelt came to hunt. Wow. And, um, I was just like, wow. And it was, I mean, I would imagine that at the time it was much different than it is now because, you know, cities were growing, villages were getting bigger and stuff like this, but 
there were you know, we'd come over the hill sometimes and I you know they would always tell me this is where he would hunt this is where he would hunt and I would always imagine it being completely different and then we'd go over the hill and there's like a little river there and I was just like man I can't imagine like what it would be like with all the animals and, and him just being here. So yeah. I always think about that. When I think about you, I think about him and I think about Kenya. So it's just like this, this cycle, you know, you're, yeah. I, th- I think you're the only person that I know of in close proximity that, that he's kind of like in the forefront. What are some of the, the top books that you would recommend if somebody wanted to get into learning more about Theodore Roosevelt? What are some of those books that you've just really um, enjoyed reading? All right, so there's um, the River of Doubt was great. Uh, that's that kind of takes place after his presidency, and he goes down the um, uh, the Rio de Dubia, which is basically he's just trying to find. I can't remember if it was he's trying to find where the headwaters are of uh, the Amazon. I can't remember exactly why they're doing it, but um, it's just this awesome, exciting adventure where he almost dies, and wow. he's there with the son and a bunch of other people, and it's just really well documented. Um, uh, Edmund Morris did a series of a trilogy on him as well. Um, if you want to read about him. And so it goes through his early childhood. It goes through his kind of the middle years and then kind of closer to the presidency and, and onward. And then there's a, uh, we've got a couple of books here um, that he wrote prolifically. So you can read his own books. And I think it's one oh, of the wow. best ways to go. It So you got fear God and take your own part, you know, here. Wow. Uh, he's, he wrote uh, this, let's see. The story of the Rough Riders is good by Edward Marshall, um, and then the Rough Riders itself by Theodore Roosevelt was fantastic. And then there's just tons of book books on hunting, and uh, and I think the best thing is you know if any read any book that you read about him is going to have a lot of his quotes in it. Yeah. But one of the things that's amazing to me is just how much he wrote, and um, and and the way that he spoke uh, is just very inspiring. So I think you should get your hands on some of his older works. What are the top three lessons that you've learned from his life? Uh, This is something that's interesting because I'm listening to a book right now by Michael Easter. uh, I think it's his name. Um, It's called The Comfort Crisis, and uh, I'll double check that. But the, um, let's see if I can pull it up without it playing here. I always like to be (laughs) on point with my facts here. Comfort Crisis by Michael Easter. Yes, got it right. Okay. And he's talking about basically life has gotten too easy for us. And we yeah. need to get, get out of our comfort zone. And Theodore Roosevelt was all about the strenuous life. He was like, you know, like this life of ease that that even in the 1800s, people were really still drawn to this like, oh, we're going to all be able to just lay back and chill and, and, and life's going to be easy. And we don't think about that in the 1800s. But even then, that level of ease was too easy for him. He was like, no, we need to, we need a life of strenuous, strenuous labor and, and hard work. So that's one of them. Um, uh, I, he has some really great things that he says. I don't know if this would be in my top three, but I'll mention it because it's on top of my head um, about being an American. And I think it gets taken out of context sometimes, but he basically says, you know, there's no, um, you know, hyphenated Americans. Like there's no Indian Americans or Chinese Americans or whatever kind of, because people were coming from all over the place into America. Yeah. It says you're just American and you can be these other things too, but not, you know, when you're an American, you're just American, you know? Uh, And that is, that's, it's really the great, um, it's really one of the greatest things that you can be because it, it brings everybody together. Um, You don't have to specify like um, your origins or anything like that because it really doesn't matter as an American. Um, So he talks about that other life lessons. I think um, 
overcoming. It's just, it'd be difficult not to, um, not to see Theodore Roosevelt's early life, especially, uh, and, and even the role that his father played in helping him learn how to overcome his illnesses as a kid. You know, his, he says later on that his dad would take him into like a car, like when Theodore Roosevelt had asthma issues and stuff like that as a young child. And his dad would take him into a car at any time of night and just drive him around the city as fast as he could go to try to get some wind coming into the car and into his son's lungs. Wow. And, um, and, and just the example that his father left was, was awesome. But that, that spirit of just overcoming, like there would be times when his family would travel and Theodore Roosevelt would, uh, have like maybe like one good day out of the week that he could actually go out and explore. And the rest of the time he's just laid up in bed too weak, you know, and incapable of doing anything, but he would, that's how he would live. He would just, as soon as he felt good, boom, he's out, he's gone and, um, and living life and not feeling sorry for himself. So really just so many, so many things. Yeah. Such a, an amazing, if you think about it, legacy. Yeah. <laughs> Cause yeah, this sure. is, you know, that's one of the things that I've always kind of, and from a distance, I've never done a deep study into his life, but from a, from a distance admired by him is just his tenacity of just living life. Right. Yeah. And that is definitely a legacy that I think a lot of people, especially in this day and age could, could really read up on and, you know, Hey, we probably should start doing the hard things again. Yeah. And um, that's one of the reasons that I, I try to keep him kind of the forefront of my mind and front yeah. and center and some of the things that we do. And I'm excited about the coffee launch because it's going to help, you know, even with the beard oils and stuff that we do, and this isn't a product pitch. It's That's just fine. Sort of a, you can pitch as much as you want. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the, all of our beard oils are patterned after bearded men of history and it's oh, to cool. help people think about like, Oh, this is John Muir. Who is he? I love this scent. Oh my gosh. He was this naturalist explorer guy that went out and, you know, and, and uh, changed how the nation felt about our, uh, mountain ranges and different things. Is he the guy that's that got up in the the trees during a storm? Did he? I don't know. I feel like uh, that, that's the guy that just got that, that. That wouldn't surprise me at all because yeah. it sounds like something he would do. Because he was just he would just go and just like like you know where Yosemite is now, he would just be there, and he would write back all these you know letters and stuff about what he had seen, and it would just it was just open people's imaginations as to what was out there. And then that inspired Theodore Roosevelt as well to go visit. They did some work together and, uh, and then helped form some of the national parks, but you know, Frederick Douglass and so forth. But there's, there's a lot of guys that we men that we just want to like, you need to know these guys, you need to know how they lived and what they stood for. Yeah. Yeah. Who are some of other than those guys, who are you some other, other men that you, you kind of look up to and need and you think, okay, I need to know more about this guy. I really, uh, I did a while of studying on some of our presidents. Um, even though he was short-lived, uh, James A. Garfield had a pretty incredible life. Um, he was shot and uh, in his presidency, and um, the you know essentially the assassination just took forever to take place because it, uh, the infection um, is what killed him. But the uh, so him, um, uh, let's see, Theodore Roosevelt, um, gosh. I'm just, I'm just kind of drawing a blank here as I go through history. Well, Frederick Douglass would be a fantastic guy to read up on as well. And if you read any of his uh, works, so former slave, um, and he, uh, once he gained his freedom, you know, uh, really kind of shocked everybody with how educated he was, how well-spoken he was, and, yeah. uh, and, and really helped 
kind of lead the movement on um, uh, ending slavery. And I'm trying to think, uh, there are several others. There's, I can picture the guy in my, in my mind. Um, he's not very well known. They were going to do a movie about him. Oh my gosh. It's going to drive me crazy. It's okay. You'll think about it at the end of the podcast. I'll, I'll think about it at the podcast, <laughs> like later tonight. I'll be like, Oh, that's his name. But yeah, I mean, there are several guys that as you're just kind of going through history, one of the things that's interesting to me, um, is when you're reading a book like Theodore Roosevelt writes or somebody else writes, um, uh, you can, they'll mention somebody that you've never heard of, but that was influential in their life. Wow. And you go research that person. You go, oh, well, you kind of go down this rabbit trail. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. That's awesome. All right. So I'm going to throw this in there just because. Oh, <laughs> Elihu, Elihu Burritt. That's who I was thinking of. There you go. So oh. he's, uh, he was a, what was called the learned, learned blacksmith. He's actually mentioned in my book. And, um, he, he started blacksmithing when he was a kid cause he had to, cause his, his dad was a blacksmith and had to help out in the family. This is way back in the day as well. And, uh, but he just had this mind to learn. He just wanted to learn so much. And his dad eventually died. He had to take over the blacksmithing business. And when he was really young, he would study like like, you know, on his own, like arithmetic and all these different languages and just anything that he could, he could basically get his hands on. Yeah. And so he's like blacksmithing and then he's kind of like working out figures in his head and then he's going and checking them later to make sure that they're right. And he's learning like all these like ancient languages and, and crazy stuff. So anyhow, he ends wow. up becoming like a congressman or something, but he just had a really cool, uh, really cool life. He wrote a, a lot of books as well, but there are a lot of guys like that, which we we've never heard of. I think one of the biggest lessons I think we could probably take away from these men is, you know, we weren't there whenever they made decisions on going after something specific, but is that they just went after the thing that they were passionate about. And because of that, they were able to live this, what we see now is a pretty extraordinary life. And it's inspiring. I know that stories, stories are so powerful because they, they have the ability to inspire you to go and just do something that you're, you know, passionate about or something that you want to experience. And I I think we could learn a really important lesson in just looking at the stories, looking at the legacies that were left and just go out and do something. Right. Yeah. I think just going and doing, and for me, Growing up in the country, I didn't really have any friends around. I had maybe like one friend that would come down during the summertime and a few people that were not close by. So, you know, most of my day was just me doing whatever I imagined, whatever I came up with to, yeah. do to keep myself entertained. And that's kind of unheard of for a lot of people. They kind of get into a system or a structure or you need to be doing this or watching this show or playing this game or, you know, being on this particular social media platform. And, and their life is very much like laid out to follow along with somebody else's plan. And that just didn't, um, that wasn't me. And so I'm really fortunate to be able to, I think that's where some of the entrepreneurial things yeah. come from is that I feel fortunate to, to like not have that sort of inner, inner regulator that says, well, other people don't do this. So maybe I shouldn't either. That doesn't, that doesn't really exist with me. And in fact, my wife has to tell me like, you know, that's not normal. <laughs> it's like, Oh, okay. Well, let me, let me decide if that's really what I want to do. But the, yeah. um, but I think that there was a, especially back in the day, there was a freedom, um, for all kinds of stuff. Even if you look at like the names people gave uh, to their kids, you know, uh, four or five generations ago, they were just like the most beautiful sounding names, but they didn't really, it wasn't just like named after a TV show star or, oh, yeah. 
you know, everything right now follows pop culture and uh, people just had more freedom to just be, to kind of follow their heart and be who they wanted to be, I think in, in some ways. And strangely enough, we actually have more freedom these days because there's less societal constructs that we have to adhere to. Yeah. And at the same time, I think there's fewer people who are willing to to go out and do that. Yeah, man, that's such a, I feel like that's a whole other episode. Um, and I, I think I say this in every one of my episodes, like, man, this is a whole other episode. <laughs> so shifting gears a little bit, photography. Um, yeah. You know, I, I didn't know that you were a photographer until one day you had posted some photos on Facebook of some film that you had taken. And I was like, oh, this guy's into photography. That's so awesome. And they're so good. So tell me a little bit about your photography journey. And um, specifically, I want to get into like, I, I don't know if you shoot digital, but I know you shoot film, which I think 35 millimeter, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So dive into a little bit of that. Okay, so this is this is actually where, you know, people talk about how things are easier now for people and uh, and that's a problem. But I, I, I actually use this as an example where sometimes things being easier, it can be a really good gateway into us doing things that are more difficult. And we actually see a lot of things becoming more retro. Like, yeah, we all have MP3s or streaming music, but there's like this revitalization in the music world of like records and even eight tracks, even CDs. I have a, there's a, a girl here. She's probably like 20, maybe 21. I don't know. And she, uh, but she has like a CD player. Like, wow. Like she loves to collect CDs, which is funny to me, but the, <laughs> the same this happened with me with photography. So I, I had looking back, I always wanted to do photography well, but I just didn't know how to do it. And for so long it was either film was expensive or, um, you know, digital cameras were garbage, you know, yeah. like the ones that you would normally get. And it wasn't until we, we launched rustic in Maine in 2016, I, it may have been later that year we decided to just go ahead and buy a camera. And I think it was, uh, we just sold it actually. It was a Canon T5i. And for us, that was like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. Yeah. And what happened was we're, we're doing macro photography essentially for these rings. Mm -hmm. And the camera kind of like automatically just takes really nice pictures. And you're like, whoa, this is awesome. I'm, I'm a genius now. <laughs> <laughs> but what, uh, what it allowed me to do was to begin to say, okay, I know I can take some nice pictures, but I don't really know what's going on. Let me step back and see if I can put it on manual mode and kind of mimic the same things. And, oh, this is what ISO does, or this is what, you know, Aperture does. And I had to figure all that stuff out while yeah. I was um, learning. But I quickly realized that I, uh, once that started to kind of click within my brain, I was like, oh, you know, this is, my pictures are starting to look a little bit better. And, oh, I can do some um, editing after, you know, post-process editing and all that kind of stuff. And once all that that kind of clicked, I was like, this is awesome. I love photography. We ended up going with a, a Sony a7 III now. That's what we use and um, and for, for digital stuff. And yeah. so, yeah, I do digital stuff. That's kind of like my, if I'm going on vacation and I know I got to take every picture, I'm going digital. But I always uh, am shooting film as well. And, and the film, the love of film probably began back in 2019, I think. And it was this weird thing. No, this is actually... No, it had to be 2000 and um, 2000. Yeah, I think it was 2019. And I remember getting my uh, my camera. Uh, it's here somewhere, but it was it's a Pentax uh, K1000 and 35 millimeter camera with a bunch of lenses and stuff. And I'd gotten it from like eBay. Yeah. And I remember thinking like, I'll go buy some film from Walmart or Walgreens <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. And I'm like, wait, like this doesn't even exist. Like I can't even find it anywhere. There's like no place except for like specialty film stores that were having to be closed that day. Right. That sell it. And so uh, it was this sort of like, I just felt um, in a very good way out of my element. 
really excited about shooting on film. And it's that, that sense of, if you guys haven't ever shot film, it's that sense of like, yeah, there's no, um, the digital kind of gets in the way sometimes of what a fun analog experience can be. And yeah. It's that also that sense of just sending off a few roles to be developed if you're not doing it yourself. And then having that come back and be like, oh, that turned out so cool or that turned out so great. And it's not that instant gratification that you get from the digital camera. You know, you're probably going to only going to take like two or three shots of something at most on a film um, and just hope you nailed it. And, yeah. um, and it's a whole different learning experience. So I've got that. Um, actually, I have a Nikon uh, F3 now. And then I've got a um, behind me and I've got a I do some eight millimeter um, film oh, photography, very uh, videography cool. as well. So, yeah. How do you like the F3? Oh, it's great. Um, except uh, I'll be honest with you. So on the the Pentax, um, the K1000, there's a little meter in the, in the side that kind of tells you whether you're, you know, you're, you're too bright or too, yeah. too dark with your uh, exposure. And the F3 has like a digital readout uh, at the top. And so I just, it works. That's fine. But it just, um, it causes me to to kind of have to actually process what I'm seeing, whereas that little meter on the side in the in the K1000 is is almost like peripheral. I can just sort of know and yeah. then take the shot. Um, I actually like that a lot better, uh, and I kind of wish there was a way to switch it out. But the um, but other than that, no, it's great, fantastic camera. What do you do? So I have um, you talked about sending film off. I've actually got four rolls of film that need to be sent off. And that delayed gratification that you discussed is, is so true because I've been sitting on these four rolls for a couple of months now. And I'm like, man, I just can't wait to get those in. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I yeah. shoot with a, I have uh, a Canon AE one program. That was my yeah. mother's when we were, when I was a kid, she got it and um, they broke it. She dropped it. And when I started getting into film again, I was like, man, I know she has a camera. So I went in YouTube real quick on how to fix it. And I, it took me five minutes to fix. Right. Oh, wow. And yeah. so I started using it. And then I have a friend of mine had given me a, um, an old German uh, camera that shoots 120. Wow. And so I've, done, I've run a roll through it and they came out really considering the age of, I think it's from the, 40s i believe yeah <clears throat> considering the age the the shots came out really well and that that it was so funny i'd use the ae to tell me the expo like what the exposure needed to be because the camera from the 40s is all manual yeah. and you have to get the focus right and it's all in meters and so you have to figuring that out and it was a really fun experience and um but yeah that delayed gratification is something that um, the digital kind of robs you of because you immediately can see exactly what you took like yeah. in an instant. And I love that part of it. But the other part of it that I love is being able to print and to apply it and put it somewhere Yeah. for you. Are you printing yours out and, and doing something specific with those, those shots? Uh, I have printed them out. I've had, I've done some large format prints before and they're actually rolled up on a table outside because I had, like, we don't know what to do with them. Like, where do these go? <laughs> yeah. And actually, uh, so I have an idea of something. This is, I'll just throw this out there. I don't know if it'll ever happen, but I thought it'd be really cool. Um, you know, most of our uh, experience these days with photography or any kind of stuff is on our phones, right? Which is really yeah. sad. So we, we had this really, really small window of which we're actually seeing the art come through. And I thought it'd be really awesome if there was a, um, a gallery 
that you could go to that was um, digital, essentially, but that the, the screens that we use would be so realistic that it would look like somebody had printed that picture out and hung it on the wall. Wow. And that maybe like once a month, these images would swap out with, with other images. But they would be images that you can't see anywhere else. Um, they're not posted on Instagram. They're not, you know, the, the artist isn't going to share them anywhere else. And it's just photography that we've either selected from the area or whoever, you know, however we go about that process. And to really be able to see a picture in like real life and to experience just like all the details in that, because there's grain that you, you know, you don't see when you're looking at stuff, you know, on Instagram. Yeah. It's just a different kind of impact. Like you said, like when something's printed and you're like, this is real now and I'm hanging it like, and this looks legit. That's, that's a whole different experience. I, I, I think that would be kind of a really cool thing. I think hipsters, if hipsters are still a thing, they'd <laughs> I get into know. that. I don't know if they still exist. <laughs> they may not be a thing, whatever the next version is. But uh, yeah. but people who want to impress their girls on dates would go there. And um, But I would love that because I, I love the idea of being able to see something in such large and, and wonderful detail like that. Um, and we just miss that. We just swipe and we don't even appreciate it. Yeah. What are some of the things that you would need to do to get that started? Um. So I have, so part of the vision is uh, the screens themselves, and this would be a really cool thing. I probably need Elon Musk on this. Um, I want the screens, the screens to be able to um, morph in terms of the frames uh, size. I can change a little bit so that um, let's say that the, you know, uh, for that month, this particular picture, which is hanging on the wall is a, you know, a 10 by 17 or something like that. And then, but the next picture that's going to be there is, you know, square format or is different or something like that. And so this would really be, what would be cool is to have that moment where like you're in the gallery when that changeover happens and all the screens start to change and then shape and size. And then the different pictures kind of, the old pictures fade out, the new pictures come in and you see that and you're like, wow, this is like something brand new. And just that experience of knowing that you're, this is the only place you can see this. It's rare, about as rare as rare can get. And maybe you could buy prints or something like that. But, um, and just to take the time to slow down and really appreciate, you know, these moments that are being captured um, that, that we're really not appreciating now. And of course, it'd have a coffee shop and, you know, yeah, all that. I don't know what it would take, like $2 million. I don't know. Freaking, I got, I got no idea. It's just, <laughs> it's like what we're talking $2 about. $2 million before. sounds like, good. <laughs> I got the, you know, I'm the, I'm the visionary, you know. Yeah. I, uh, I love the, the concept of it. Maybe somebody who's like, dude, I love that. Let's make it happen. We'll we'll hear this episode and and jump on it. Yeah, um, you so. got my you got my brain spinning now. I'm trying to I'll try to figure some stuff out. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I want to uh, transition over into your book. Okay. Um, and specifically, you know, your, your book is about manhood and manliness, and you know how men should live. Where do you see, um the power of manhood and of course not the toxic, you know, <laughs> the toxic part. Yeah. Um, but the true, um, just the true manhood, how do you see that playing a role in our culture? Well, I think it's really not playing a role as much as okay. it should. I think culture would look very differently if it did. Yeah. Um, you know, I, here's here's a thing that I believe a man, one first and foremost, he loves truth, so he cares about things being accurate and right, not just emotionally driven. Yeah, he's not worried about trying to satisfy or satisfy or please the crowd. 
And that's good. You know, if he wants to stand, if he wants to stand alone, he can, but usually he doesn't have to, because when he starts expressing his beliefs, other people will rally around him. And I think that's missing in so many different areas of life. I mean, we don't have it in our school systems. We don't have it in our, um, uh, in our homes. We don't have it in uh, higher educational places. And I think that if men showed up with a, a sense of responsibility to their world, to the people around them, to say that my job, why I'm here ultimately is to gain knowledge and strength. And, and that includes strength of character and to bring that to the betterment of my friends and family, um, my community, those around me, you know, that's, that's my goal. It's not self-serving like so many guys are living today. Yeah. It's, it's really a service oriented kind of mindset of like, I, I'm growing in, in strength and character because I want to be a better benefit to those around me. And that means sometimes standing up and calling people out on their BS or yeah. writing wrongs and trying to put the world in order. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think that's the, the impact is tremendous. It would be, it would be seen everywhere. Um, but of course, you know, we don't see that today. Wow. I thought, well, that's it. We're done. That's good. <laughs> no, <it's> like, <laughs> Thanks everybody. Uh, yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, so I'm assuming that um, from what you just said, um, my next question was like, why did you write this book? Like, I'm assuming that would be it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of this, when I was, um, let's see, when I was in my twenties, uh, somebody recommended, it was a counselor, actually a counselor lady, my wife and I were seeing, she recommended this book called wild at heart, which I still, Oh, that's a good book. Great, yeah. Great read. Yeah. And she said like, um, you know, Mike, uh, some of the guys at my church are really talking about this book. They really like it. Maybe you should check it out. I was like, okay, I wasn't not a reader at this point. I like, I didn't read, you know, hardly anything. And I said, okay, I'll check it out. And I did, I got it. And, um, Loved it. Changed my life. Changed my whole understanding of who I was as a man and gave me some direction. And that book is still relevant today, by the way. Uh, some friends of mine, just we just studied that um, for the last six weeks or so. But the uh, I wanted to really kind of have that same impact or something like that with my book. Because there are guys out there that are, you know, they they've maybe they've tried, you know, all of the entertainment and they're not feeling fulfilled or they have the nice job, but the nice income, they don't feel fulfilled. Yeah. They've been through relationship after relationship and something's not right. And they just feel off. Like they just feel like something is missing and they don't really know what to call it. And they don't see people really nailing that. Like, what is it? Like, you know, uh, it's almost like if you were just to look at traditional media, they don't talk about how men feel out of place or how we don't really know what we're supposed to be doing these days and why we feel like we're supposed to be doing more, be a part of something more. Yeah. But we don't really know what that is or what that looks like. You know, what's our mission, what's our purpose. And so there's a lot of men run, you know, walking around with that sort of that on their conscience. And so this was to give them some direction. It was to say, this is what a man looks like. This is what we're supposed to be doing. Here's some tools to um, sort out your own life you know, as we say in the book, kind of going into your cave and, uh, you know, and, and finding the good things that are hidden there. And, um, and so that's the goal is really to kind of build men up and to help there to be a next generation of men, you know, that, that stand for something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I remember, uh, reading the first part where you 
you kind of paint the picture of tending to the fire. And um, I was reading it and I was just like, oh, is this, I was, I was a little confused at first. I was, <laughs> and <clears throat> the way it was written, I was like, is this the way the rest of the book is going to be? Uh, Cause I'm not a reader. Um, I, yeah. you know, it's one of those things that I'm really trying really hard to work on. I do the audio books too, but I know there's power in actually having something tangible in your hand and, and reading words and it's good for your brain. And uh, it wasn't until the end of the the cave story at the beginning that I was like, oh, this is going to be a good book. Yeah. Like it, cause it just, it tapped into something that I think is inside of all men where it's just like this, this veil had been lifted for lifted from my eyes where it was just like, oh yeah. Okay. Here we go. This is going to be really, really good. At first I was like, I don't know. And then it was like, wait a second. No, he, he gets it. And, and so it was really interesting for me to go through that short little story that you had painted there at the beginning and, and, and be super excited about reading the rest of the book. What do you think happens? And I think I've just explained this, but what do you think happens to a man when you said in the, in the book, you said when, when a man explores the untouched caverns of his soul while in the pursuit of being greater, um, I, that, I put that at the end of, of what you said, but what do you think happens to a man when he does that, when he really intentionally goes into the, to the deep, unexplored, untouched caverns of his soul? I think in order to do that, we got to face our own fears. Yeah. Then the, the biggest worry that we have is that we're going to look inside ourselves and go, man, I suck. I'm really not a good guy. <laughs> yeah. Or, I don't really have much to offer this world or I don't, I can't figure things out or like John Eldridge would say, I don't have what it takes. Hmm. And so in order to have that willingness to say, I'm, I'm willing to go into the dark places of, uh, and, and by dark, I mean, I don't mean like um sick. I mean, like, as yeah. in like unknown, like there's, there's stuff here that you're just not aware of. There are lies that you've believed since childhood that you don't even know about. There are truths that you haven't discovered yet that are hidden there. Um, truths about your soul, truth about God, I believe. And, and, not to get too wonky on that, but I, I think that that's one of the pieces of it is that he uncovers his own fears and then conquers them, you know, a little bit at a time as he ventures inward. Yeah. And he begins to realize like, okay, maybe I don't have it all figured out. Maybe even today I don't have what it takes, but I can learn some things I can grow. And that's really the best I can offer. And, uh, and I think once he takes up some of that courage and he moves, you know, into that cave, you know, figuratively speaking, he's, um, yeah, he's, he's already becoming a better man just because of the willingness to take that step, the willingness to say the life that I have and the things that I have around me cannot satisfy me, not really. And I've got to do something yeah. drastically different and it's going to be uncomfortable. And I don't see many of my friends doing it, but I'm willing to do it. Anyhow, you've already set yourself apart. You've already become a, a different kind of man than what you see around you. You mentioned, um, I don't see a lot of my friends around me doing it. Would you say that that journey into, into that untouched, unexplored area is a very lonely, um, a lonely journey? I think it used to be. Um, and I think what's happening now is that you see a lot more guys that are, they, they start going down this path and they realize, okay, I might be the only dude in my immediate circle that's really serious about changing himself, growing himself, tackling whatever trauma he's gone through in life. Um, but then you start to venture out and you realize like some of the 
most brilliant and best people that exist on this planet today are doing that as well. And so, yeah, yeah maybe it's a small circle in your immediate, you know, kind of a group of friends, yeah. which you may need to train, you know, trade up your friends, but <laughs> you're going to eventually find that like, yes, yeah, it is a smaller circle, maybe overall as well. But the people that are doing these types of things, they're, they're actually happy. Like they love life. They, they care about other people. They're the thought leaders in this world. And they're not stuck just on some kind of repetitive cycle of just, well, life sucks. My job is boring or, you know, uh, here's another girl I went through or whatever the case is, they actually are doing something about it. And so, yeah, yeah, it's, it is a smaller circle. Um, I don't want to use the term elite cause I don't know if it's elite, but it is, it's just people who want to change and people who want to grow. Yeah. I, I know there's, there were some times in my life where, um, I didn't know that I could be better hmm. and, I look back and I see see how dark and not in, like you said in a sick way, but like how dark those times were because I was just kind of wandering, wandering aimlessly through life, not knowing, yeah. like you said, mission and not necessarily having a vision. And I can look back and see when that shifted and how like this, this life kind of came back into my world of like, wow, okay, I've got a purpose. I've got, I've got destiny. I, I do have a mission and, and the growth that happens in that moment is, is crazy. Right. Yeah. And I'm still on that journey. I'm still on that. Like, how can I, how can I be better? How can I, you know, tap into the God given creative ideas and, and, and life and, and building out, you know, this amazing life that we have access to still learning those things. What would you say is, has been some of the biggest struggles that you've had in your journey that have taught you the greatest lessons? I think early on, uh, I had to come to this realization that I was, um, that I was trying to live a life of not being somebody like, I don't want to be like my dad who was an alcoholic where I don't want to be like, you know, this person down the street or whatever the case is. Um, you know, I, I, instead of saying, who am I actually capable of being? What is, who is it that I actually want to become? You know, and we, we kind of rob ourselves. We set our expectations too low. We say, well, I don't want to be like my parents. And then of course we end up like our parents, you know, <laughs> but yeah. the, what we say, we basically have a list of uh, vices that we don't want to carry with us. I don't want to be an alcoholic. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be lame. Uh, in some area, but instead of, of saying, oh, what if I actually chose the virtues that I want to put on? Yeah. So I think that was a big one for me. And then I think also, um, you know, my, like I said before, my wife and I, we got married young. And so there's a lot of years where uh, we're both pretty dumb. I'm probably more dumb and we're just, <laughs> you know, causing a lot of pain and, and a lot of friction in our ma marriage. And I think at, at some point we began to learn about each other's personalities and when I realized, and I don't know when this was, but when I started to realize that her personality being different didn't make her wrong, didn't make her wow. a bad person because she didn't approach the world like I did. It just meant that she's going to have some areas that she's really strong in, some areas that she's not so strong in. And I'm going to have some areas that I'm strong in and areas that I'm not so strong in. And yeah. when I began to really appreciate that, I really found ways to appreciate her differently. And she found ways to appreciate me differently. And it also helped me to understand myself. You know, and that to know that, okay, it, my personality and particular makeup may make me uh, unique in the world, 
in some ways, but, um, you know, it doesn't make me a bad guy. Um, and, but to also understand that I'm, I'm going to be more prone towards these vices and, um, and I need to watch out for that, that kind of stuff. Wow. That's, um, I think we all go through those moments where, um, those lessons seem really hard to learn, but once we've kind of processed and, and trudged through, we look back and we're just like, okay, I got this. Got, yeah. I can handle I think, it. I think my latest stuff that I've been going through has really been around my attachment style. Like how do I attach and connect and what are my limitations that I, the barriers that I put up to attachment, uh, how do they surface themselves, you know? And, um, and my wife's attachment style as well, my kids and various things, but just going through that about myself and uh, allowing myself to realize like there's, there's a deeper level of connectedness that I could be experiencing that I don't sometimes. And I put these barriers up that prevents me from doing that. And, uh, and being aware of that and trying to change that has been, uh, has been fantastic, but it's also been really tough because a lot of times when you grow up, like I did kind of alone. Um, there are some things that you just, some neurological things that you don't develop and to try and do that as an adult, it's kind of like trying yeah. to figure out math when math is really hard. You know, you just kind of like your brain doesn't want to, to take that information in. Um, now for some people who like math, I don't know, yeah. maybe it's grammar or something like that, but whatever the <laughs> case is, whatever the, the analogy is, um, it can be actually physically painful and really, really challenging to grow in certain areas, it actually feels wrong and, uh, and you fight it, but eventually, you know, it's, it's, it's for the better. Yeah. I've always found that the things that I struggle with in growth are typically the things that I need to struggle with. Like I need, like, um, I'm not familiar. I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with, um, I think it's Marcus Aurelius who said that, um, the obstacle is the way. Yeah. Yeah. And, I'm learning that lesson really a lot, like really, really, really a lot right now where I'm in the past where I would come up against an obstacle and I would just back away from it. Yeah. Because it, 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 you know, you tell yourself this lie of like, you're not good enough. You can't do it. It's not worth it. Just do what's easy. Now it's like, okay, I've got to power through this because on the other side of that is a freedom that, I've always wanted, I've always wanted to experience, but I've never experienced it. And I'm always reminding myself of like, okay, the, the obstacle is the way on the other side is a freedom that you've always wanted to experience. And, and I'm grateful that I'm in a place now where it's like, okay, I'm just going to push through. I'm going to make it happen. So diving into manhood and manliness what do you think are the core um, foundations that men need to just establish to just go out and be a truthful man with character and integrity? I think the first thing is that he has to realize the importance of truth and how it plays in his life. A great example of this, especially in our, our time where we have like, um, you know, my truth or uh, yeah, there is no truth. Everything's relative these days. Uh, one of the great examples that, and I didn't make this up, somebody else did, um, is, you know, imagine like you put money into the bank, you've worked, you know, you've done your job and money gets deposited into the bank and you look at your bank account and you say, Oh, look, I got 1500 bucks in there. Good job. And then you go and you try to use your card and it gets declined. And you're like, what's going on? Like, this is not working. 
So you call the bank up and they say, oh, there's no money in your account. And you say, well, no, I got $1,500 in there. I, I literally just deposited it yesterday. And they say, well, that's your truth. But our truth is that you're zeroed out. Wow. You know, that's not going to work. Obviously, like there's no, like that, when you, when you think about like truth in real situations, not in just like, you can do whatever you want with your life and I can do whatever I want with my life. When you think about it in real situations, it really matters. And we all believe in truth because we all believe in justice. Nobody likes the idea of somebody going to prison for some a crime they didn't commit. Yeah. Uh, but we all like the idea of someone being punished rightfully for a crime that they did commit. Right. So we all love justice. So we all love truth. We care about truth. Well, if that's the case. There's really not an area in life that that's not important. So I want to be a man that is growing in my understanding of truth. I want to be a man who's growing in his conviction about what truth is. And then I want to be able to grow as a man who has the courage to stand for that truth. And, um, and that also means like our own truth about ourselves. Like, you know, um, okay, I'm not as attached as I want to be. I'm not as in shape as I want to be. I don't have my finances figured out like I want. I am addicted to social media. I am addicted to porn or I am, you know, whatever the case is. Yeah. And, and just being able to confront that reality of life and the willingness to do that is going to change you. It's going to make you say, okay, I'm only going to, you know, um, move in the direction that is true. And, um, and if that means I've got to face some hard facts, that's what I got to do. And how he begins that, you know, I think it's some of it is a bit of a mind game. Some of it's uh, a bit of walking into our own cave and realizing just how much we don't want to be to live a life where we're kind of bound by reality and how we kind of want to just be able to get away with our own, whatever it happens to be. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's key. Wow. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it is a lot. And that's it's, a lot. And it's hard that's a lot of meat, yeah. a lot of meat to yeah. chew on. How has your journey um, in in discovering manhood and being man being a man and <clears throat> all the values in place? How has that impacted your your sons and your family life? Uh, you know, I don't, it's a good question. I think ultimately, it'll, it'll time will tell. My yeah. boys are now nineteen and twenty two, so they're older, and um, you know they're, they're kind of out there trying to find their own way now. And I'm proud about many of the things that they're doing and, and a lot of the character. And I like to think that, you know, I've had a lot to do with that. Um, yeah. sure I have, and my wife as well. Um, I, I think that more than anything, it's really helped me to have the strength to shoulder some of the burdens of raising kids and some of the burdens of, um, you know, the finance, being a financial guy, you know, uh, the guy that makes the money and, and that kind of stuff. And, I think that was really key, especially early on. My boys both had some kind of, they were somewhere on the spectrum with autism. And there was just a lot of things that were brand new for us uh, yeah. and that we had to figure out. And so my wife was really key in that, but there's also that emotional way of just like trying to um, just staying, staying together through it, yeah. which is a challenge. And so uh, I think there's also a, you know, if, if my wife is more emotionally in tune with things and she is, and I, if I can be more um, objective about things so I can, you know, as a man learn to kind of remove myself sometimes from the emotional side of things and just look at, you know, the whole perspective of yeah. our family dynamics and life and be able to make calls, be able to make decisions. Uh, that's really key as well. You know, 
to have somebody who can do that. So I think, you know, growth as a man, a big part of that is, yeah, is learning how to be objective, not get caught up in the emotional stuff. That doesn't mean you're not emotional. It just means that you can learn to take a step back from when that's, when emotions are starting to become the driving force of a decision-making, being able to step back and make some decisions that are more objective and logical is important. Yeah. How has your faith played a role in this journey and this process? Oh, it's been tremendous. Um, because a lot of that aligns with truth as well. So if a man says, well, I want to do things that are true. Well, how do I know if Christianity is true? How do I know if what I believe is really just, isn't just made up stuff, you know, and I'm just believing in some junk like somebody else. Um, how do I know what religion is true? You know, uh, being able to make those kinds of calls is, is key. So you start to go down this path. A lot of times of apologetics, typically what happens for guys is, and this happened for me is, um, you get allured into Christianity because of an emotional appeal. Yeah. You know, you're going to go to hell or, you know, you want to be saved. And then you kind of go down more of an apologetics route where you're thinking more, uh, through the theology and the logic behind it. Yeah. And then you realize that you've kind of strayed from the heart of it all. And so you kind of go back to the heart, you know, more mm-hmm. but this time more well-rounded. But I think that, um, that journey, uh, has just been critical for me as a man because it's helped me to realize where I've, where I am doing a good job of becoming objective about something, but also strayed from the heart of something that's supposed to be a heart matter in a lot of ways, you know, connected yeah. to God through, through my heart. And, and also, you know, a really test of my faith of like, one of the things I write about in the book was my wife and I were um, pretty close to getting a divorce. We had separated in 2019 and things got pretty ugly. And I thought this is not going to work. Like we were try, we've tried so hard. It's just not going to work. And um, a pastor said to me, he said, Mike, what do you think the success percentages of your marriage working out at this point? And I was like, I don't know, man, like maybe like 1%. Wow. And he said, are you willing to see what God would do with that 1%? And I was like, oh, that's a good question. It's Am a I? real good question. Like, do I really believe that he could work out, you know, this, figure all this out, all the counselors we've been through and all the money we spent, all the headache. It's like, could he figure something out? Could he show us something brand new after all this time with just 1% to yeah. work with? And, uh, and he did, thank God. And, um, but that's, you know, that's putting your, your, uh, it's a test of your faith, putting that on the line. Right. And, um, but it was also a motivating factor in me sticking with the marriage. Wow. That's an, that's man. It's so cool. How I, I love the, the heart of God and his, his desire for reconciliation. Yeah. Um, it, it always, I see it in so many aspects of our lives where he's just, he's just a God of reconciliation and bringing things together that, that seemingly would seem, seem impossible. And so many times the lesson that we have to learn is just to open our hands and just kind of surrender. And I know as men, that's really hard for us to do in a lot of aspects of, of our lives. And it's so cool to hear stories of that. And I love that, that question of like, are you willing to see what God can do with it? That's a good one. I might start asking myself that question a lot, (laughs) a lot of things. (laughs) So good. Oh, what are some of the topics in the book that you have gotten the most pushback on? That's a good question. I actually haven't gotten any pushback. There was one, you know, like Amazon reviewer 
that didn't like in you know whatever they were like nameless they were like anonymous type of thing oh, okay yeah but uh you know they said something that it was actually a part of the book that i, I always wondered like is anybody gonna take this the wrong way and this person did and it's kind of at the beginning and one of the things that i say in there is i'm talking about the incredible um the incredible amount of influence that males adult males have over young men yeah and that you know, not to dissuade or not not any kind of knock against women and their desire to help young men grow to become better people um, or even to become better men. But what ends up happening a lot of times is that when a woman steps up and starts saying, well, this is what a man does, or this is what a man looks like, or this is how a man operates, it feels more like to the guy, it feels like she's pushing. Yeah. Pushing, you know, become this thing. You're not good enough. You're not good enough. Become this thing. And even moms, when they do it with the best of intentions, a lot of times feels like nagging or pushing. Whereas men have this ability to say, come join me in this. Come yeah. Be like, be like I am at least to some degree. And, um, and so this person, they took issue with that, but really there hasn't been much pushback. The other piece that I thought that I would get pushback from, and I think maybe the book just hasn't gotten into enough places, um, was talking uh, at the very end where I talk about spirituality. I kind of get into some stuff about how church these days just kind of sucks for a lot of guys. Yeah. And a lot of church leaders are not the kind of men that we desire to be. And so, um, and a lot of men, we find ourselves kind of like looking for like real manly examples in, in our world. We definitely don't see it like in our churches usually, you know, now there are, there are exceptions, right. but I, I expected to get some pushback on that. I haven't yet. Um, but you know, maybe one day I'll hit the wrong church and they'll be like, what did you say? I can't believe yeah. um, <laughs> who are some, uh, sp like spiritual examples of men that you've taken from, uh, the Bible. Oh, from the Bible. Well, Jesus, obviously. Yeah. And I, and I say Jesus, obviously, but maybe it's not so obvious because I actually talk about this in the book as well is that, and I think people who don't understand Jesus and who only think about some religious version of, you know, Christianity or whatever. They think about Jesus as like shepherding lambs and like giving, you know, saying fables to children and like, you know, talking to doves or whatever. I don't know what they think, but like, <laughs> like, like yeah. he's not a man. And um, that's not true. Nothing could be further from that truth. Right. You know, Jesus was the manliest uh, character in scripture. Uh, like, you know, there's guys like Samson and stuff like that, you know, or, you know, that, um, you know, you go, well, he's manly because he ate honey and killed people and you know, did all this stuff. <laughs> well, okay, yeah, he did, but he he had certain character pieces of manliness or masculinity, but he didn't have the whole thing figured out. Um, uh, but other guys, I think Paul's a fantastic example right. of manliness. David's a, a fantastic example of manliness. Paul's um, uh, ability to just, I guess in some ways... And maybe we just don't get a, enough of insight into this, but I'm always amazed at how like he was so anti-Christian, like, you know, killing Christians anti. Yeah. And he was so much on a particular path. And when that got changed, when he went from Saul to Paul uh, and and Jesus visited him on the road to Damascus, you know, he, he changed over so completely and he didn't, um, I think that would wreck a lot of guys. I think to realize just how wrong you were and how offensive yeah. you've been and how you've watched people die and be stoned to death um, and chant that on. And then to realize I was wrong. Like, I think that would wreck a lot of people. So there's a, 
there's a lot of good things to say about that. But yeah, David as well. Um, but there are plenty. Yeah. Um, I just think, thank goodness for grace, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, give us a brief uh, snapshot of the five principles that you lay out in the book of living manfully. Yeah. Um, all right, let me see if I can do a, uh, I'll try to do them in order here from the book. So the first one is uh, living deliberately. And so this is the kind of the idea of living deliberately is being intentional about your life. Yeah. Uh, Michael Easter actually gets into this with his book and I kind of, I'm, I'm digging it right now uh, with the comfort crisis. It's that we've got to be in how we approach life. No longer are we going to be like fit simply because of how our daily lives go. No longer are we going to eat the things that are going to keep us healthy because of how our, you know, we raise our own food or we hunt for our own meat. Like almost every aspect of life can be automated in some way or outsourced in some kind of way. And we have to be extremely deliberate about the choices that we make and not falling prey to just the, the ease of things and getting swept along with it. Um, the second one is living courageously. And this is uh, one of the pieces that I talk about in here is just having that initial, what I call first courage. And it's a willingness to be that guy. It's a willingness to say, I'm going to be the guy who takes a stand, even if nobody else will, even yeah. if it makes me seem weird. I'm going to say the thing, you know, at the office meeting that everybody's thinking, but nobody's willing to say, I'm going to stand up for people who need to be, you know, stood up for. I'm willing to be that guy, but being courageous. Um, uh, and there's plenty of examples of that and finding that within ourselves. Um, living virtuously. So this is uh, being deliberate about the virtue virtues that we're actually trying to put on. And this kind of goes back to what I was saying. Instead of trying to live as though I'm trying to be absent of certain vices, like I don't want to be like my dad or I don't want to watch too much TV or I don't want to gain too much weight or I don't want to whatever. Um, you know, what are the virtues that you actually want to put on? Can you name these virtues? Can you, you know, if somebody said name 10 virtues, could you do that? Wow. Can you think about, um, do you, you know, like when your kid's out, uh, let's say they're playing baseball or soccer or something like that, and they score a goal or they have a good game. Do you just say good game? Or do you say, you know, you, you really showed a lot of tenacity and you really, you know, showed a lot of um, fortitude. Like, are you helping your kids learn these words and yeah. kind of understand like, there's particular characteristics that were on display that we have a word for, and we need to value those things. And one of the first ways to do that is to start talking about it again. Uh, and then living truthfully and living spiritually, um, you know, those things I think are, are, are closely related, but I think living truthfully means having that heart uh, and that desire to be truthful and to be honest, um, no matter what, even if it's going to hurt somebody's feelings, there's tact around things. Yeah. But, you know, having that desire to live uh, a life that's true, both, uh, and that means true to yourself, true. The man that you want to be on the inside is the man you're trying to live out on the outside, you know, that as well. And then living spiritually, I think first is recognizing that we're a spiritual being and recognizing the spiritual being in everybody else as well. That's um, good. As C.S. Lewis said, you've never met a mere mortal. And that's true. You know, there's, Every person that you meet is a spirit that is, um, you know, trying to figure things out. That is part of God's creation. Yeah. Uh, that's going to outlast all the nations and all the wars and all the hype and everything else around us. And um, 
and recognize that just incalculable worth inside of each person, I think is, is the first step to trying to live that way. Wow. That's so good, man. Where can men take next steps? Um, what resources uh, do you have available for men to take next steps in just going down that path, going down that journey? So let's say they've read the book and they're like, oh man, this is awesome. I really want to be a part of something that's, you know, that's helping me to become a better man. Um, you know, if, if you, the free stuff is the Wolf and Iron podcast. Yeah. So if you go over to wolfandiron.com, you can sign up for the podcast there and go listen to it on any platform that you uh, listen to podcasts on. And so we're, you know, I do episodes on there called Truck Talk Thursdays, where it's just me talking from my truck. Um, uh, I, uh, on occasion, interview people as well, and we'll have those out there. If you really want to, you know, be really intentional about how you're growing, we have something called the Foundry. And the Foundry is, it's our own app and our own platform that uh, uh, that we can use to, you know, build, we have groups out there inside the Foundry as well. So we have groups on everything from hunting and fishing to, um, you know, fix it up, you know, fix up stuff around the house. And we're getting ready to, I think probably in the May timeframe, we're going to launch something called Guilds inside the Foundry. And so Guilds will be our band of brothers. So that'll be like your group of guys that you're connecting with and studying with and growing with. And so, but if you can sign up for the Foundry now, you'll get a chance to uh, kind of see how things work there. Uh, we always have challenges that we're doing uh, as well and uh, inside the Foundry that are just part of the membership. And so that'd be, yeah, just head over to wolfandiron.com and you can kind of see all of the different things we've got going on. Okay. That's awesome. One last question. What um, is your definition of legacy? I think that um, that's a good question. I think that ultimately it's what impact do you want to make that lives beyond you? Not simply what do you want to leave behind? I think a lot of people think, oh, legacy, you know, I'm known as this and there you are in the grave Yeah. or legacy. You did this cool thing. Congratulations. You know, that's not, Yeah. I think that's, yeah. I mean, I guess it's legendary maybe, or it could be a type of legacy, but I think the best legacy is recognizing that, I'm going to make an impact that's going to outlive me. And what is that impact going yeah. to be? Wow. And recognizing your responsibility with that. It starts first with our homes, uh, with our families, but I don't think it ends there. I think that we have uh, a great potential to impact the people around us, um, our friends, family, neighbors, and uh, communities. And so, um, yeah, I think that's, I think that's our legacy. And I think even there's going to be a, a spiritual legacy that we have, you know, I think that there will be a time when we, get to heaven and we start meeting people, however that works or however that looks. Yeah. And, you know, I really hope that there'll be some kind of way of knowing like, Hey, because you said, you know, talk to Jesus about my great, 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 great grandfather or whatever, you know, here I am today. Yeah. Or because you did be this cool. one thing, you know, um, you know, there's a, there's a positive impact there. And I think that'll be awesome to see that one day. Yeah. it will be awesome. Mike, thank you so much for, joining me today on this episode. Um, I, like I said, at the beginning, I've looked forward to it uh, for a while now. And I just really appreciate um, the things that you're doing and the inspiration that you're putting out there. And I look forward to seeing growth in, in all your businesses and what you're, what you're going after. Uh, thank you again for writing this book. Guys, if you're listening, be sure to go out and get uh, Mike's book. I'll, I'll put some links in the show notes. Uh, Tending the Fire. It's definitely um, a good read. I'm currently half, I'm about halfway through it. So I'm really enjoying it and it's definitely challenging me. So 
definitely if you're a man or you're a woman who has a man who needs to read it, <laughs> go out and uh, order this book for him. So thank you guys again for listening. I really appreciate it. And Mike, thank you. Thanks, man. Appreciate yeah. it. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please share with a friend and be sure to subscribe on your favorite streaming app. You can find us at 414creative.com and on Instagram at 414creativestudios. Thank you for being here. It was an honor to spend this time with you. I hope you were inspired. Now go out and create your legacy.